0: CHAPTER THREE OF GOLD IN THE SKY BY ALAN E. NORSE THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. TOO MANY WARNINGS For a moment, neither of the boys could say anything at all. From the time they had learned to talk, they had heard stories and tales that the miners and prospectors told about the big strike, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow the wonderful, elusive goal of every man who had ever taken a ship into the asteroid belt. For almost 150 years, since the earliest days of space exploration, there had been miners prospecting in the asteroids. Out there, beyond the orbit of Mars and inside the orbit of Jupiter, were a 100,000, maybe a 100 million, for all anybody knew, chunks of rock, metal and debris, spinning in silent orbit around the sun some few of the asteroids were big enough to be called planets ceres 500 miles in diameter juno vesta Pallas, half a dozen more a few hundred others ranging in size from 10 to 100 miles in diameter had been chartered and followed in their orbits by observatories first from earth's airless moon then from mars there were tens of thousands more that had never been charted together they made up the asteroid belt spread out in space like a broad road around the sun echoing the age-old call of the bonanza for there was wealth in the asteroids wealth beyond a man's wildest dreams if only he could find it earth with its depleted iron ranges its exhausted tin and copper mines its burgeoning population was hungry for metal Earth needed steel, tin, nickel, and zinc. More than anything, Earth needed ruthenium, a rare-earth catalyst that made the huge solar energy converters possible. Mars was rich in the ores of these metals, but the ores were buried deep in the ground. The cost of mining them, and of lifting the heavy ore from Mars' gravitational field and carrying it to Earth was prohibitive. Only the finest carbon steel— and the radioactive metals smelted and purified on mars and transported to earth could be made profitable but from the asteroid belt it was a different story there was no gravity to fight on the tiny asteroids on these chunks of debris the metals lay close to the surface easy to mine ships orbiting in the bell could fill their holds with their precious metal cargoes and transfer them in space to the interplanetary orbit ships spinning back toward earth it was hard work and dangerous work most of the ore was low grade and brought little return but always there was the lure of the big strike the load of almost pure metal that could bring a fortune back to the man who found it a few such strikes had been made forty years before a single claim had brought its owner seventeen million dollars in two years a dozen other men had stumbled onto fortunes in the belt but such metal rich fragments were grains of sand in a mighty river for every man who found one a thousand others spent years looking and then perished in the fruitless search and now johnny coombs was telling them that their father had been one of the incredible few "'You really think Dad had a bonanza load out there?' "'That's what I said. "'Did you see it with your own eyes?' "'No.' "'You weren't even out there with him?' "'No.' "'Then why are you so sure he found something?' "'Because he told me so,' Johnny Coombe said quietly. "'The boys looked at each other. "'He actually said he found a rich load?' "'Tom asked eagerly. "'Not exactly,' Johnny said.' Matter of fact, he never actually told me what he found. He needed somebody to sign aboard the scavenger with him in order to get a clearance to blast off, but he never did make a plan to take me out there with him. I can't take you now, Johnny, he told me. I've found something out there, but I've got to work it alone for a while. I asked him what he'd found, and he just gave me that funny little grin of his and said, never mind what it is, it's big enough for both of us you just keep your mouth shut and you'll find out soon enough. And then he wouldn't say another word until we were homing in on the shuttle ship to drop me off. Johnny finished his coffee and pushed the cup aside. I knew he wasn't joking. He was excited and I think he was scared too. Just before I left him, he said, there's one other thing, Johnny. Things might not work out quite the way I figure them. And if they don't, Make sure the twins know what I've told you. I told him I would and headed back. That was the last time I heard from him until the patrol ship found him floating in space with a torn open suit and a ruined scooter floating a few miles away. Do you think that Jupiter Equilateral knew Dad had found something? Tom asked. Who knows? I'm sure that he never told them. But it's awful hard to keep a secret like that and they sound awful eager to buy that rig, Johnny Coombs said. Yes, and it doesn't make sense. I mean, if they're responsible for Dad's accident. Why didn't they just check in for him on the schedule, and then quietly bring in their rig to jump the claim? Maybe they couldn't find it, Johnny said. If they killed your dad, they wouldn't have dared hang around very long right then. Even if they'd kept the signal going, a patrol ship might have come into the region any time. And if a U.N. patrol ship ever caught them working a dead man's claim without reporting the dead man, the suit would really start to leak. Johnny shook his head. Remember, your dad had a dozen claims out there. They might have had to scout the whole works to find the right one. Much easier to do it out in the open, with your signatures on a claim transfer. But one thing is sure. If they knew what Roger found out there, and where it was, Towney would never be offering you triple price for the rig. Then whatever Dad found is still out there, Tom said. I'd bet my last dime on it. There might even be something to show that the accident wasn't an accident, Tom went on. Something even the Major would have to admit was evidence. Johnny Coombs pursed his lips, looking up at Tom. "'Might be,' he conceded. "'Well, what are we waiting for? "'We turned Towney's offer down. "'He might be sending a crew out to jump the claim right now.' "'If he hasn't already,' Johnny said. "'Then we've got to get out there.' "'Johnny turned to Greg. "'You could pilot us out and handle the navigation, "'and as for Tom—' "'As for Tom, he could get sick all over the place "'and keep us busy just taking care of him,' "'Greg said sourly. You and me, yes. Not Tom. You don't know that boy in a spaceship. Tom started to his feet, glaring at his brother. That's got nothing to do with it. It's true, isn't it? You'd be a big help out there. Johnny looked at Tom. You always get sick in free fall? Look, let's be reasonable, Greg said. You'd just be in the way. There are plenty of things you could do right here, and Johnny and I could handle the rig alone. Tom faced his brother angrily. "'If you think I'm going to stay here and keep myself company, you're crazy,' he said. "'This is one show you're not going to run, so just quit trying. "'If you go out there, I go.' Greg shrugged. "'Okay, twin. It's your stomach, not mine.' "'Then let me worry about it.' "'I hope,' Johnny said, "'that that's the worst we have to worry about. "'Let's get started planning.' time was the factor uppermost in their minds they knew that even under the best of conditions it could take weeks to outfit and prepare for a run out to the belt a ship had to be leased and fueled there were supplies to lay in there was the problem of clearance to take care of claims to be verified and spotted orbit coordinates had to be computed and checked a thousand details to be dealt with any one of which might delay embarkation from an hour to a day or more. It was not surprising that Tom and Greg were dubious when Johnny told them they could be ready to clear ground in less than 24 hours. Even knowing that Merrill Towney might already have a mining crew at work on Roger Hunter's claims, they could not believe that the red tape of preparation and clearance could be cut away so swiftly. They underestimated Johnny Coombs. Six hours after he left them, he was back with a signed lease giving them the use of a scout ship and fuel to take them out to the Belt and back again. The ship was in the Sun Lake City racks waiting for them whenever they were ready. What kind of a ship? Greg wanted to know. A class three flying Dutchman with overhauled atomics and hydrazine side jets, Johnny said, waving the transfer order. Think you can fly it? Greg whistled. Can I? I trained in a Dutchman. Just about the fastest scooter there is. What condition? Lousy, but it's fueled with six weeks' supplies in the hold, and it doesn't cost us a cent. Courtesy of a friend. You'll have to check it over, but it'll do. They inspected the ship, a weather-beaten scouter that looked like a relic of the 90s. Inside, there were signs of many refittings and overhauls, but the atomics were well shielded, and it carried a surprising chemical fuel auxiliary for the cabin size. Greg disappeared into the engine room, and Tom and Johnny left him testing valves and circuits while they headed down to the U.N. registry office in the control tower. On the way, Johnny outlined the remaining outfitting steps. Tom would be responsible for getting the clearance permit through the registry. Johnny would check out all supplies and then contact the observatory for the orbit coordinates of Roger Hunter's claims. I thought the orbits were mapped on the claim papers, Tom said. I mean, every time an asteroid is claimed, the orbit has to be charted. That's right, but the orbit goes all the way around the sun. We know where the scavenger was when the patrol ship found her, but she's been traveling in orbit ever since. The observatory computer will pinpoint her for us and chart a collision course, so we can cut out and meet her instead of trailing her for a week. Do you have the crew paper Greg and I signed? Right here. They were stepping off the ramp below the ship when a man loomed up out of the shadows. It was a miner Tom had never seen before. Johnny nodded as he approached. Any news, Jack? Quiet as a church, the man said. We'll be held up another eight hours at least, Johnny said. Don't go to sleep on us, Jack. Don't worry about us sleeping, the man said grimly. There's been nobody around but yourselves. So far, except the clearance inspector. Johnny looked up sharply. You check his papers? And his prints. He was all right. Johnny took Tom's arm and they headed through the gate toward the control tower. I guess I'm just naturally suspicious, he grinned, but I'd sure hate to have a broken cut-off switch or a fuel valve go out of whack at just the wrong moment. You think Townie would dare to try something here, Tom said. Never hurts to check. We've got our hands full for a few hours getting set, so I just ask my friends to keep an eye on things. Always did they say that a man who's got to gamble is smart to cover his bets. At the control tower they parted, and Tom walked into the clearing office. Johnny's watchman had startled him, and for the first time he felt a chill of apprehension. If they were right, if this trip to the belt were not a wild goose chase from the very start, then Roger Hunter's accident had been no accident at all. Quite suddenly... Tom felt very thankful that Johnny Coombs had friends. "'I don't like it,' the Major said, facing Tom and Greg across the desk in the U.N. Registry office below the control tower. "'You've got an idea in your head and you just won't listen to reason.' Somewhere above them, Tom could hear the low-pitched rumble of a scout ship blasting from its launching rack. "'All we want to do is go out and work Dad's claim,' he said for the second time. I know perfectly well what you want to do. That's why I told the people here to alert me if you tried to clear a ship. You don't know what you're doing, and I'm not going to sign those clearance papers. Why not? Greg said. Because you're going out there asking for trouble. That's why not. But you told us before that there wasn't any trouble. Dad had an accident. That was all. So how could we get in trouble? The Major's face was an angry red. He started to say something, then stopped, and scowled at them instead. They met his stare. Finally, he threw up his hands. All right, so I can't legally stop you, he said. But at least I can beg you to use your heads. You're wasting time and money on a foolish idea. You're walking into dangers and risks that you can't handle, and I hate to see it happen. Mining in the belt is a job for experienced men, Not ranked novices. Johnny Coombs is no novice. No, but he lost his wits, taking you two out there. Well, are there any other dangers you have in mind? Once more the Major searched for words and failed to find them. No, he sighed, and you wouldn't listen if I did. It seems everybody is warning us about how dangerous this trip is likely to be, Greg said quietly. Last night it was Merrill Towney he offered to buy us out. He was so eager for a deal that he offered us a fantastic price. Then Johnny tells us that Dad mined some rich ore when he was out there on his last trip, but never got a chance to bring it in because of his accident. Up until now, I haven't been so sure that Dad didn't just have an accident. But now I'm beginning to wonder. Too many people have been warning us. You're determined to go out there, then? That's about right. The major picked up the clearance papers, glanced at them quickly, and signed them. All right, you're cleared. I hate to do it, but I suppose I'd go with you if the law would let me. And let me tell you one thing. If you can find a single particle of evidence that will link Jupiter equilateral or anybody else to your father's death, I'll use all the power I have to break them. He handed the papers back to Tom but be careful, because if Jupiter Equilateral is involved in it, they're going to play dirty. At the door he turned. Good trip, and good luck. Tom folded the papers and stuck them thoughtfully into his pocket. They met Johnny Coombs in the registry offices upstairs. Tom patted his pocket happily. We're cleared in 45 minutes, he said. Johnny grinned. Then we're all set. They headed up the ramp. Reached ground level and started out toward the launching racks. At the far end of the field, a powerful Class I Ranger, one of the Jupiter equilateral scout fleet, was settling down into its slot in a perfect landing maneuver. The triangle and in J insignia gleamed brightly on her dark hull. She was a rich, luxurious looking ship. Many miners on Mars could remember when Jupiter Equilateral had been nothing more than a tiny mining company working claims in the remote equilateral cluster of asteroids far out on Jupiter's orbit. Gradually, the company had grown and flourished, accumulating wealth and power as it grew, leaving behind it a thousand half-confirmed stories of cheating, piracy, murder, and theft other small mining outfits had fallen by the wayside until now over two-thirds of all asteroid mining claims were held by jupiter equilateral and the small independent miners were forced more and more to take what was left they reached the gate to the dutchman's launching slot and entered inside the ship tom and johnny strapped down while greg made his final check down on the engine gyros and wiring the cabin was a tiny vault with none of the spacious living room of the orbit ships. Tom leaned back in the acceleration cot and listened to the countdown signals that came at one minute intervals now. In the earphones, he could hear the sporadic chatter between Greg and the control tower. No hint that this was anything but a routine blastoff. But there was trouble ahead. Tom was certain of that. Everybody on Mars was aware that Roger Hunter's sons were heading out to the belt to pick up where he had left off. Greg had secured a leave of absence from Project Starjump, unhappily granted, even though his part in their program had already been disrupted. Even they had heard the rumors that were adrift. And if there was trouble now, they were on their own. The asteroid belt was a wilderness, untracked and unexplored, and except for an almost insignificant fraction, completely unknown. If there was trouble out there, there would be no one to help. Somewhere below the engines roared, and Tom felt the weight on his chest, sudden and breathtaking. They were on their way. End of chapter 3